chapter 21. We see in the context, Paul, having arrived in Jerusalem, is welcomed by the elders, welcomed by the church, and here he comes during the time of the Passover, roughly two million people have flooded into Jerusalem for this large feast, or this large Celebration, Acts chapter 21, our reading will come from verses 17 through 26. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. The text reads, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, have having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we once again go into this study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word, which is eternal. As your word is declared, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And so, Father, once again, open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. By way of introduction, once again, on behalf of the Honduras team, we want to thank you for your prayers and your support, your encouragement. A newsletter, as I mentioned, has been printed, is out there for you to pick up. I hope you'll be encouraged by what God did, by what God did as you read the testimonies. It's hard to portray in a slideshow, but the testimonies, I think you'll be encouraged by what God did and through in the individuals, simple people, clay pots, as the scriptures would call us, people willing to be used by the Lord doing their best to work together. For about half the team, it was their very first experience 
overseas and, or internationally doing missions work. And when you put a group of people together in short quarters, uh, conditions of heat and stress and pressure, uncertainty, you find out what's really inside many times. And I want to say that they were all outstanding, outstanding, both inside and out. They really pulled it together. It was a really a wonderful team. And God protected us from many injuries, including precarious van rides and multiple mosquito bites and medical accidents, strange animals walking on the rooftops, bats in the bedroom, or a dog bite, excursions at night, criminal activity, etc. God knew we probably couldn't handle hundreds of kids coming, so he brought us the right number that we were able to manage. It turned out to be one of the most organized we praise God for that. God knew only one person on the team is really a dentist, and yet he gave everyone a job to help him out, and God blessed us with all the patience and the opportunity to pray with them, to share the gospel with them, share the gospel with the children. God knew we weren't great hand chime players. In fact, one song was so hard, we never even played it. The other one, we had messed up during a worship service, but we picked it up and moved on. But even there, it was unique. And so, like you saw, we ended up being covered three times by TV news crews. And who would have known that we would have been given a spot on primetime live national and international TV? It was God who uh, chose to have the director watch us from Houston and say, this is going so well, let's cut out the commercials and you continue on. Even then, it wasn't really about the music nor the hand chime players because it was just a means to an end. The end was that a wonderful testimony of God's saving work was proclaimed on TV. and The gospel was proclaimed and shared with hundreds of thousands of people, potentially we'd be watching around the country and internationally. God knew that we just wanted to serve, and he used and taught us in so many expect- unexpected ways. So we want to thank you for everyone's support, prayers, especially those of you who followed and got these intermittent texts from your kids, I'm sure. Everyone who enjoyed reading the website or the Facebook page about what God did and the fruit that will be born. There is another individual, though, that returned from their mission trip, which wasn't very much fun for them. In fact, they were in danger. It was his third trip that he had gone on. He had seen many people come to know Christ, but he knew that upon his return from his trip, there would be no video slideshow, no enjoyable, really, times to describe except for people coming to know Christ. No, he knew that upon his return from his mission trip, he would be arrested, he would be bound, and he would suffer. In fact, he probably saw the light at the end of the tunnel which was dimming, and that would be the end of his life. And that would be the Apostle Paul, as he comes to this text here. He comes into Jerusalem, and we come to the, near the end of Paul's life, and the end of his last missionary journey, his third missionary journey, in which he comes to Jerusalem, and it marks the beginning of his arrest, it marks the beginning of his imprisonment, it marks the beginning of a trial. The traveling portion of all of Paul's mission's work has come to a close. And we come to this juncture here in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, and he gives a missions report. He gives a missions report. 
Verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. He finally arrives in Jerusalem despite some of the warnings that he had received, despite the pleading of his brethren to not go because they knew what was going to happen to him there. They knew that he would be bound. They knew that he would be imprisoned and suffer. And here he is at first welcomed at the very beginning by James. James, this would be the half-brother of Jesus. James, who would be known by the Jews and among the Jews for his piety, his devotion to God. Eusebius, the Greek historian of the fourth century, writes about this James, saying that his knees were that of like a camel because of all of the time he spent kneeling in prayer. James, and also, it says, the elders who were present. According to historian, there were probably about 70 elders patterned after the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews. And so the elders patterned themselves, perhaps after the ruling body of the Jews, having 70 elders. It is an interesting observation or point to note historically. But what's even more interesting is that the apostles in this text are no longer in full leadership of the Jerusalem church. You see, when the church first began in Acts chapter 2, as the church grew, the apostles saw the need for more and more leaders. You remember in Acts chapter 6 when there was the incident with the Hellenistic widows who were not receiving their share of that which was the, the portion of food. And so they appointed, they appointed seven godly men, among whom was Stephen. They appointed seven godly men to handle this so they could focus on the preaching of the word, prayer. And so here we see the leadership of the church being expanded. Elders are first mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. And by the time of the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, the elders were the ones who had a prominent role in the leadership of the Jerusalem church. The apostles had gone on to do missionary work, and we see also that one had already been martyred in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. So, we see the apostles being in charge, and them appointing a number of men to help out. And then we see the growth of the church, and the church being led by the eldership in Jerusalem, a plurality of godly men called elders. So when Paul arrives, he finds this warm welcome, he greets them. He began, verse 19, to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. One of the characteristics of the Apostle Paul that is of great admiration is his humility. He didn't recount all of the churches that he had planted or majoring on the statistics of how many people were saved or talk about vague generalities about how wonderful and fun it was. He didn't major on the food, the accommodations, the weather, or even his suffering or how much he did for God. What did he talk about? Verse 19, the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry was all about God, all about his work, all about how God had provided, how God had protected, how God had led, what God had done, and how God had redeemed and saved people. How God had included within the church Gentiles. How 
people were praising God because of the salvation that God had brought among them. So that people would say, what a great God we serve. The Psalms extol the greatness of God, the greatness of His work. The Psalms point to God as Psalm 145, 3 through 7 tells us, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works together and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall Speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Subject of a goods missions report in the newsletter, which you'll be able to read from, is about what God has done, about how God provided, about how God open the doors for the gospel to be shared. Mission trips are to be undertaken because we believe it would please our Father. Because what we do is not about us, it's about God and about pleasing God. Whether you serve here or whether you go overseas to serve, it is all about what we do to please God. When Lou Little was the football coach at Georgetown University, he had this squad of average, uh, a player on his squad who was of average ability, and he rarely got into the game. And Coach Little, though, was rather fond of this average player, even though he didn't play much, because he liked the way that he walked arm in arm with his father on campus when he saw him. One day, though, before a big game against Fordham, this football coach heard this boy's mother call. She called him to tell him that his father had died that morning of a heart attack. So the student went home just to spend time with his family. Very heavy heart. Three days later, though, he was back. He was back. And he said, Coach, will you start me in the game against Fordham? I think that's what my father would have liked the most. Without a moment of hesitation, the coach said, okay, but only for a play or two, because, you see, he was just an average player. So true to his word, he put the boy in, but he never took him out. For 60 minutes, through all of the entire game, that young man ran and he blocked like an all-American player, and after the game, the coach went to him and said, son, you've never played like that before. What got into you? The boy said this. He said, remember how my father and I used to go arm in arm to campus? He said, well, he was totally blind. And today was the first time he ever saw me play. Not to say that people in heaven watch football but his desire was really to please someone he loved. Somebody not visibly present made all the difference in the world. That's how it is. When Paul gave his missionary journey, because why did he go through all of this suffering? Why did he go through all of this in his life? Because he was motivated by the love of Christ. Someone who he couldn't visibly see, but he knew 
was watching, who knew, who was visibly, who was there present, it made all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world by what you'll sacrifice, what you'll endure, whether you serve here or serve overseas, what you decide to do, how you are motivated will be influenced by whom are you really doing it for? Whom are you really doing it for? We have an audience of one when we decide we're going to live and serve and give our life for Christ. So after giving his report to the elders of the church, they gave glory to God because of what God was doing overseas and how God had brought people to know him. And then he had to deal with some unfounded accusations. He had to deal with some rumors that had been swirling among the people. And we find that in verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who had believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, there were a large number of Jews who had come to know Christ. They had become Christians. It says there that they had believed, and they were all the more zealous about the law, keeping the Old Testament law, but not understanding that the Old Testament law had been fulfilled. They, they were just desirous to keep them still. There were genuine believers in this text. The practice of the Mosaic law was obviously not for the purpose of salvation, but for the purpose of their zeal for God. The apostles notably didn't dissuade these new Jewish believers from practicing the Old Testament law. And in Acts chapter 15, when the legalists, during the Jerusalem council, when the legalists wanted the Gentiles to practice the law, the verdict from the Jerusalem council was that the church was not to impose those laws upon the Gentiles. But they also didn't prohibit believing Jews from continuing to practice what they did, how they felt to please God. These new Jewish believers were, in, in effect, those who perhaps didn't have a full understanding of the purpose of the law. They continued to practice some of the Old Testament law. The Lord knew, though, that this time was a transitional time in their understanding of the law. He knew that this would be the transition of the church and all of this would change because after AD 66 to 70, when the Jewish revolt happened and Rome came in to crush that revolt, the church would eventually become much more of a Gentile faith than a Jewish faith. And practically speaking, that's how it is with many Christians Many Christians come to know Christ, and early on, they hold to, they practice things, they desire to honor Christ, they desire to honor the Lord that may not be explicit in the Bible. When someone comes to know Christ, many times they hold fast, maybe to some traditions, maybe to some practices that they grew up with, or maybe they learned early on. In some Christian circles, Sunday is viewed as literally a replacement for the Sabbath, and you literally rest, you no playing cards, no playing, no reading comics, no doing anything except for rest. To some, it would be viewed as sinful. They desire to practice that. In one true instance, I read about one strict college that had very strict rules where one student 
they weren't, they held to that, no working at all. One student spied on his own wife and saw her hanging out clothes that she had washed on a Sunday afternoon. He reported her to the authorities. Other practice communion every single Sunday, and so it's difficult for them to miss a Sunday without that communion or Eucharist. Sometimes it may be a personal belief or a personal practice that other cultures don't practice either. Some have very strong feelings about this or that, privacy or transparency, while other cultures have no problem asking questions that people here in the U.S. would consider taboo. In this case, there were some Jewish Christians who had continued to practice the law, not quite understanding the full purpose of it. But Paul was accused of teaching Jews in other parts of Asia Minor to leave Moses, not to circumcise their children and to forsake their customs. And these were unfounded accusations, perhaps brought upon by Judaizers, perhaps enemies of Paul. In fact, the word that is used there, they have been told, is the word from which we derive the word catechism, uh, repetition of of uh, things, by learning by repetition. In other words, this wasn't a one-time rumor. It was a rumor that was spread. These accusations against Paul were repeated over and over again, perhaps by those who promoted the Mosaic Law. But Paul didn't teach these things. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 16, when he circumcised Timothy, and in Acts chapter 18, he took a Nazarite vow himself. On the other hand, Paul's enemies lobbied accusations against him. They accused him of advocating circumcision in the book of Galatians. Here, his accusations was that he wasn't. Simply to say, if one attack doesn't work, then perhaps another will. But in either case, there were Jewish believers who had bought into this. They thought Paul was against what God had taught and promoted what God had given to them, and they would hear Paul come to Jerusalem. And so here the church was in a dilemma. What would they do? They will certainly hear, verse 22, that you have come. So here, Paul faces uh, these unfounded accusations of what he had not spread. What were they going to do? Paul gave his mission report. He hears about the unfounded accusations. This was a serious issue, and Paul's reputation, the church, might have easily splintered over this. But what we see here is that we see that he unselfishly defers not only to the elders of the church, but he submits himself under the law for the unity of the church. He submits himself under the law for the unity of the church. Verse 23, therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. What we see here is that Paul in his humility is faced with these unfounded accusations but what he does is he unselfishly defers not only to the leaders of the church, but submits himself under the law for the sake of the unity of the church. The leaders told him there were these four men 
who are under a Nazarite vow. We know that because later on it talks about the shaving of their heads. Now, a Nazarite vow is found in uh, Numbers chapter 6. It was a vow that was undertaken as an act of uh, devotion to the Lord. And in that vow, you would uh, do certain things. You wouldn't drink alcohol. You wouldn't cut your hair. You wouldn't come into contact with dead bodies, typically for a period of 30 days. Some had different times. Some individuals had different times in which they would undertake this Nazarite vow, but typically it would be these things for a period of 30 days. And the elders told Paul, you purify yourself along with them. Uncertain what exactly what purification was, but a plausible explanation might have been that uh, Paul had been in Gentile lands and therefore he was considered impure. So he needed to purify himself. In addition, he would pay the expenses of these other four men so that they may shave their heads. Now, this was not just a, a simple haircut. This was a ceremony. This was a ceremony that was a part of the Nazarite vow. At the end of a Nazarite vow, it would entail not only the cutting of the hair, but also some expensive sacrifices that were to be made on behalf of those who had taken the vow. And if Paul did these acts, the elders of the church said, All will know there is nothing to the things which have been told about you, but you also walk orderly, keeping the law. Just so there would be no confusion, just so there would be unity within the church, and this wouldn't be blown away, blow out the church, these instructions would not apply to the Gentiles in consistency with the Jerusalem Council. Remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15? They had declared, related to the Gentiles, whether or not the Gentiles needed to follow the law, the Mosaic law. And the Jerusalem Council said, no, no, they don't need to. We just want to ask if they would abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled animals, and from fornication. But they didn't impose the law upon them. And so, in consistency with that decision, in verse 25, they reiterate that same thing. So what did Paul do? Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself, he went to the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, and then the offering and sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul didn't fight back. He didn't say, look, I'm innocent. I didn't do all of these things. They say, why should I have to pay these expensive offerings and fees? Why should I have to take the time and subject myself to the Old Testament law? I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I don't care what anybody thinks or anyone I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm right, they're wrong. Paul did no such thing. In fact, he didn't lobby. No objections are recorded. Why? Because he humbly submitted himself to the elders, to the law, in order to preserve the unity of the church. Some Jews wanted to practice the Old Testament law, and that is fine. Gentiles weren't asked to do so. The apostles didn't forbid nor promote, but Paul voluntarily submitted himself. He was practicing what he had taught the Corinthians. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9.19, it says, For I am free from all men. I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, 
though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. In other words, he accommodated, he accommodated for whatever people that he was ministering to. In 1 Corinthians, he did it so that he would win souls. But in here, in this context, he did it, I believe, for the unity of the church. If it meant practicing the law, the conviction of others who would be offended by his practice, if it meant following Jewish customs, he would do that as well. What Paul was formerly restrained by, you see, because of legalism in his past life, he was now restrained because of love. He was wholly willing to submit himself to the Old Testament laws, to the Jewish customs, because of his love for the church, because of his submission to the leadership of the church. Back in Acts chapter 16, a prime example of Paul doing this for the sake of testimony was when he took Timothy with him. He took Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. It says, Paul wanted this man to go with him. Timothy, that is. And he took him and circumcised him before, because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy would have not had a great testimony had he been uncircumcised. Circumcision has nothing to do with one's salvation. But he went and had Timothy circumcised. Why? Because it would have offended the Jews. It would have hampered his testimony. It would have been a difficult journey. But no, he submitted himself under the law, and he had Timothy circumcised. It didn't affect his spiritual growth. It didn't affect his spiritual maturity. It didn't give him a more favorable standing before God, but he did it for the sake of testimony. Paul and Timothy knew that. They preached and practiced the gospel of grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they willingly submitted themselves to the law because they were driven by love. We are to use our freedoms to obey God, to promote the gospel, not to live some libertarian life and say, I'm free, I care not what others think or my testimony. During the last days of the Civil War, the Confederate capital in Richmond, Virginia, that fell to the Union Army, and there's a story about how Abraham Lincoln visited, insisted on visiting the city, and no one knew that he was coming. But the slaves recognized him immediately, and they thronged around Abraham Lincoln And he had liberated them by the Emancipation Proclamation, and now his army had set them all free. Admiral Dave Porter, who was an eyewitness, said this, quote, said that Lincoln had said this. He said, my poor friends, he had said to these slaves, you are free, free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. Liberty is your birthright. But then he warned them about the abuse of their freedom. Let the world see that you merit your freedom. Do not let your joy carry you into excess. Learn the laws and obey them. Unquote. Very much like the message Christ gave. He freed us from the bondage the penalty of sin and death, and he granted to us grace that we might do what we 
ought to do that which is to follow God. We sometimes give up our quote-unquote freedoms when it comes to areas that the scriptures do not say are sinful for the sake of testimony, in deference to others, in unselfish thoughtfulness, in accommodation for the sake of testimony, not motivated by legalism, but motivated by love, love for God's people. So very easy to think that others ought to think like us, so very easy to think that we ought to, they ought to live like us, or so easy to have customs like us and think that they ought to think like we think. There's no compromise when it comes to biblical principles, biblical issues, but there's plenty of accommodation when it comes to issues that are non-biblical. We love the gospel, we love God's people, we love the Lord so much that we would not want to hurt the testimony of Christ nor bring division in God's church. And so Paul does this as an example to us. And many times those who have been overseas on missions trips know that in every culture, in every context, we accommodate, not compromise. We accommodate for the sake of Christ because we love God. We desire to win people to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the example displayed to us by the Apostle Paul. And we pray, God, may we be people who will hold fast to that which is true, but accommodate an understanding for the sake of your truth, for the sake of your people, for the sake of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word. May you continue to sanctify us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.